This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances in childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 56, recorded on May 20th, 2016. I'm your host, Tim Craig, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Ryan Roberts. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks, Tim. Good to be here. And we're here with Dr. Mark Hanley from St. Jude Research Children's Hospital. Uh, thanks for being here, Mark. Uh, great, greatly appreciate the opportunity. It's been a fantastic visit. Good, good. Yeah, it's great to have you here sharing some of your uh, intense science with us. So we'll get into that in a second. But uh, kind of first wanted to hear a little bit about your background for our audience. I think people like to hear where you came from, where you grew up, what got you interested in science and medicine, what makes you tick. All right. Can we summarize that in one sentence for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I like to use a lot of words. So... Um, that I'm originally from Edmond, Oklahoma. Um, I was born and raised there, a, a Oklahoman at heart. Um, I graduated, went from Edmond Memorial High School and stayed in Edmond to go to college at the University of Central Oklahoma on a little-known fact a music scholarship playing an obscure instrument called the euphonium. Wow, that is an interesting background. Halfway between a tuba and a trumpet. That's I right. That earlier. Yep, that's tuba. right. Sounds somewhat similar to a trumpet. Bone on steroids. Um, so, Did you up, were you ever in a tornado? I've been in many tornadoes. So <laughs> my 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 older brother and I used to actually go outside trying to spot them when we heard the sirens go off. And uh, sounds exciting. Yes, when the sirens go off in Oklahoma, they mean it. And so, but so I stayed there for college, and then had some very um, very nice professors. Um, I was a chemistry major. And uh, I had uh, been a competitive bicyclist, um, racing around the country, and blew out both my knees. And after I was recovering from surgery, one of my chemistry professors grabbed onto me and says, I think you need to work in the lab. <laughs> and so I became the, the uh, TA for the quantitative analysis and instrumental analysis chemistry courses, and I got the bug. And uh, one of our, of our chemistry professor um, had been to UT Southwestern. She was affiliated with OU Health Sciences Center, and she'd been to UT Southwestern to work in uh, Sandbrook's lab at the time, and said that they had this great thing down there called the MD-PhD program, and I think this would be perfect for you. So I, I went down to UT Southwestern to interview for the medical scientist training program, and I arrived the same day that Al Gilman got back from Stockholm with his Nobel Prize, and it was fate. And so I was got became um, I went down there to join the MD PhD program. I became Did you get to meet him? I did get to, I did get to meet him then. He was a little busy at the time. He didn't uh, share any of his cash or anything. No, no, he did not. Um, but um, I became enthralled with uh, guanine nucleotide binding proteins and kind of the biochemistry. And so I joined his lab and that's where I did my PhD work. First uh, studying annual cyclase and then um, G, uh, G proteins. And so he was a great mentor for me. 
Um, and those are obviously central in, in most cancers, if not all cancers. Exactly. And so I have, um, so these G proteins, um, actually a, a lot of our drugs are, are interact with G protein coupled receptors. Um, and so a, a little bit of, um, so these G proteins, they're, they're multiple classes and some of them are the key oncogenes driving cancer. And so my work is after, you know, 15 years after leaving his lab, I uh, got a little nostalgic this past December. He passed away um, December 23rd after um, battling pancreatic cancer. Um, and he was very instrumental in my development and uh, and pushing me forward. And so um, G proteins are actually the number one mutated genes in ribomyosarcoma. So we've completely shifted a lot of our focus in our lab to working on RAS, which is a G protein, and um, and determining how it's functioning around the microsarcoma. So you went from musician to bicyclist to chemist to yep. oncologist, and now you're back to the chemistry of oncology. Exactly, Bi biochemistry and oncology. So I, after leaving Gilman's lab, I, I stayed at UT Southwestern and joined um, Eric Olson's lab, which is a massive empire of skeletal muscle developmental biology and molecular biology. He is just a pioneer in um, studying development in molecular biology and has made profound impacts in um, skeletal in all muscle biology, skeletal muscle, smooth muscle, and cardiac heart muscle. How big is his lab? When I was there, we had I had to get a big frame for the picture when I left, <laughs> um, and so it was probably around forty to forty-five people. That's and a big lab. It was a giant. It was a giant operation, and Eric was is great, and he had had a lifelong interest. He's been studying skeletal muscle his entire career, and when I joined his lab, he wanted me to build a rhabdo mouse, a rhabdomyosarcoma mouse, and so that's kind of what I. What year was that? It was two thousand and seven. So none of, the, none of the existing mice were around yet. Not not really, and they weren't they weren't very robust, and some of them were. Um, they all have some caveats, and so if, like uh, not a whole a high percentage of the mice actually developed tumors, which made them a little difficult to study. And so yeah, he thought we could do better. And so I went to the lab with that, and then he was really generous. And so I was the cancer guy working in the corner. So he gave me space and resources and a bench for me, a bench for a tech, and we just went to town. And uh, we started doing the rhabdomyosarcoma work, and it was we took kind of usual suspects and all of his muscle tools and started crossing mice together, breeding them together to put the genes together, which is what Eric does, and, and letting him go, and not much was happening. And so at the same time, he had um, stumbled upon these new sets of genes that we had just recently, recently appreciated called microRNAs. And so I took a little deviation into the world of non-coding RNAs and microRNAs and um, studied one of the most um, oncogenic um, microRNAs, microRNA 21, and its role in cancer, and so helped. Um, I, uh, one of my friends, a MD PhD student in the lab, had um, targeted it in ES cells for to make a knockout mouse, and so I made a mouse that overexpressed or turned on MIR21 to to high levels, and then searched for its role in cancer and kind of defined that process. And then, uh, as being a pediatric oncologist, I, I was doing all this work in non-small cell lung cancer. And it was, you know, although we were making good biological insights, it wasn't satisfying to me because it really wasn't, it wasn't helping the patients that I treat. 
And so I wanted to get back to this rhabdomyosarcoma uh, project that we initially started, but all the mice, you know, they were not weren't getting the, the phenotypes or they weren't developing the tumors that we were looking for. Sounds like science. It was science at its hardest, yeah. For me, a lot of serendipity was involved in, um, in uh, the way that things progressed. And so there was a, a professor in developmental biology at UT Southwestern who had made a completely um, serendipitous discovery, looking for something that he wasn't looking for. And he crossed some mice together to activate the sonic hedgehog pathway, which is important in um, development of organisms, and wanted to study the hedgehog pathway's role in fat development. And so he crossed some mice together to look at fat metabolism and development, and lo and behold, all the mice got rhabdomyosarcoma. And he was very focused, and he is he's very good at what he does, but he didn't want to get distracted by this obscure pediatric tumor. And I became very, very excited um, about the opportunity. He's been very gracious, so he shared all the mice with me, and so in collaboration with John in Eric's lab and through with another um, professor at Southwestern, uh, Renee Galindo is a pediatric pathologist, we kind of collaborated to characterize this mouse model, a uh, new rat mouse model of rhabdomyosarcoma, and it really nicely recapitulated a lot of the features of the pediatric tumors. What so, made you interested in pediatrics in the first place, or pediatric oncology? In the first place, so back um, when I was young, like probably preschool, very early elementary school, there was a boy that went to church with us. And my family was kind of friendly with their family, and I knew them well. And he came, um, he had AML. And so I kind of witnessed what happened to him um, through the process of uh, his journey. Um, and he eventually uh, passed away and died from his malignancy. And at the time, you know, we were little. And so when he was wearing a cowboy hat at church and different things that, you know, just seemed a little different, but it just, uh, it was something that just stuck with me. And it just, it didn't seem fair. And so, um, then later, I always really became interested in science. My uncle is a, um, pediatric metabolic disease specialist. Um, and so I kind of, you know, he lived halfway across the country, but I always kind of thought that was cool. Um, and he had done some time in Bethesda and, and developed, some, did some research as well and, um, developed a lot of assays for those diseases. And so I got interested in science. And then my high school um, science teacher, his son, while well, I was, I was, um, I was in his class, and then I became his like assistant for biology AP courses. Um, his son developed a really obscure sarcoma, and that no one could type, and it was horribly invasive. And they were going from Oklahoma City to MD Anderson and trying to figure out things. They were shipping the tumor all over the world, trying to figure out the diagnosis. And no one ever did, and he ended up passing away. And I remember, and that was something that just kind of inspired me, thinking that we needed to do better. And so um, I just sought out the what I thought was the best scientific training, most rigorous training, um, best mentors I could find, and then tried to get on that track as fast as I could. Sounds like you did a good job of it. <laughs> so um, are you continuing to study in that same mouse model now? Or are you I am. Diversifying? So we're, we're doing both. So... We're, we want to make sure that we take advantage of the opportunities that we're given. So we have this observation where these um, tumors that appear like muscle um, in humans and in our mouse model 
that our our mouse models suggest that they're not coming from the muscle progenitor cells, which is somewhat of a paradigm shift because we've all thought for a very long time that it was the developing muscle cells that get um, genetically altered and have get required mutations or different genetic events occur that block their normal development, and that's kind of how rhabdo arises. But our mouse model... Which, which is probably still true for alveolar type, right? I think it's probably true. It's definitely true for alveolar type, I believe. And I believe it's probably largely true for the type I'm studying, the fusion-negative rhabdomyosarcoma or the embryonic rhabdomyosarcoma. One of the things that I think is worn out over the last several years with a lot of the genomic efforts and um, as we start to learn more about the biology from mice and from doing the human sequencing, is that probably this fusion-negative group is really heterogeneous. And there's probably more than one origin and more a lot more subtypes of rhabdomyosarcoma that we commonly appreciated. I think as time bears out and we learn more, the fusion-negative rhabdomyosarcoma group may very well recapitulate what we see in medulloblastoma, where we're able to classify it into subtypes um, based on their genetics. I was just going to say that seems like a story that we've told several times as we learn more about different kinds of well, leukemia yeah. being the poster child. Right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so I think the rhabdomyosarcoma, we, we lump these kids together um, because of what it looks like on a microscope slide, but you know, because we can't do any better, right? Because we don't have any better information. But they occur all over the body, different ages, different uh, locations, and and the genetics and the mutations that they have are now we're starting to bear out that they're probably quite different. Well, one of the unique features I think of rhabdo compared to other cancers is that the location is very prognostic, right? And so that speaks to exactly what you're saying, that those are actually different tumors. It's, it's never made sense to me why, if it arises, you know, periorbitally, it's very favorable. Right. If it arises, you know, in the extremity or something, it's not. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. I think lo- it's like real estate. Um, location matters. And so the other thing, so at first glance, you can almost think that, that the locations, that the survival linked to the locations could just be our ability to resect them. Like the peritesticular rhabdos and, and boys do very, very well. Is that just because we take it out up front? Or it's detected early. Right, it's detected earlier. But the orbital ones, we detect very early, but we don't resect them, and they still do fantastic. So there's something about the biology, these tumors in different locations, that we're not understanding. So um, one thought would be that it's a tumor microenvironment that might differ in different locations, but is, yeah. is any of your work bearing that out, or is it more intrinsic to the cell type? So we've just recently, um, after a few years, um, now been able to start to address some of those questions. And we're, we're just at the point where we can do that. We've been able to label the tumor cells in our mouse model um, with fluorescent reporters that allow us to purify them away from the tumor microenvironment from the um, other tumors and so, or from the other cells, the blood vessels, the fibroblasts, all the different stromal components macrophages, um, and so so now we can start to try to address some of those questions. So you could transplant a tumor from one site to another site, right. just the tumor cells, not the microenvironment, trade out the microenvironment, right. and ask whether that makes a difference. Exactly. Is that some of your planned experiments? They're, they're upcoming, and they may be an aim of my next experiment. <laughs> <laughs> so we've um, actually, with the, the sorting and the labeling the fluorescent um, of the tumor cells, now we're able to purify those um, and get them to grow. Before, it was very difficult to get our tumors to grow 
um, because we would get a lot of contamination from these external components. And so, uh, but now we've got a way to purify those out, and so we can ask these type of questions. Great. What other are, what are the other burning questions for you in rhabdomyosarcoma? <laughs> so the cell, cell of origin is um, one of the ones that that we're really going into to figure out these locations of the tumors and and what um, kind of sets up um, the playing field for the tumors to take hold. And why is that important for prevention? Well, for detection. It, it probably won't prevent the tumors, but if I think one of the things that, that could potentially be interesting, if we think of there's lots of hypotheses about like how the tumors develop, and one of them is like a tumor stem cell hypothesis. So if you have like a solid tumor, you have these cells that are propagating throughout the, the tumor, but you also have these tumor these cells or hypotheses, you have these tumor stem cells that are lying quiescent. And you can treat the propagating tumor cells, the ones that are um, proliferating because they're sensitive to all of our cytotoxic chemotherapy that we're giving, but those cancer stem cells um, kind of are resistant. They're not going through a cell cycle. They potentially could, could stay there, and potentially those are the cells that occur during relapse. Those stem cells probably are more closely recapitulate the cell origin and where they came from. Um, Louise Parada at Sloan Kettering has a lot of beautiful work looking at the stem cells um, and the cells of origins of glioblastoma and like how it affects chemosensitivity. And if we could figure out how to target those, um, then potentially we could reduce our recurrence rate. You know, another beautiful thing about your models is it's one of the few models that really recapitulates well the most common forms of this disease, both in location and in, and in the histology, the way that they look. Right, so our, our model is the kind of the embryonal subtype, the fusion negative, which is 60% of the kids um, get this type of tumor, and then a third of the children have them in the head and neck. What do you think are the important lessons that you've learned along the way for a junior person or a fellow, uh, you know, to make it? <laughs> Don't give up. You have to take advantage of the opportunities that are given to you, and um, meaning that when you when you're when you have an observation or something that seems interesting, like us with this animal model, it would have been really easy to just characterize it and be done. But I think going deep and knowing and recognizing that there's probably something to the way that the whatever observation it was and really digging deep into the biology, I think allows allowed our lab to probably make some critical insights that really weren't anticipated and we're hoping that we'll expand um, both the uh, biology of rhabdomyosarcoma but as, as well could be very important for just normal um, development. And how will going deep into the biology uh, help us treat children differently or better? It's, sometimes it can be difficult to see like a direct translation of mouse genetics to like what we're doing to the to these um, to treat this tumor, but um, I'm going to take a step back and say that um, the chemotherapy that we're using to treat rhabdomyosarcoma is composed of three drugs: it's vincristine, actinomycin D, and cyclophosphamide. That combination was first described in 1974. We've tried a lot of trials, throwing more more toxic treatments in intensifying treatments, trying targeted therapies, and every time 
we go back to vincristine, actinomycin D, and cyclophosphamide. So we're doing the same thing we've been doing since 1974. And that, to me, is unsatisfying. So we, I could potentially you know, start screening drugs and doing these things, but I, I'm hopeful that the biology will tell us what we should be targeting. If we can figure out where these things came from, maybe we can figure out how to eliminate those cells from the tumor. And so do you always have an eye toward that when you're doing this work, or does it get lost, or how, how do you keep that at the forefront of your thinking? Yeah, it's, it's challenging. So, you know, being a, being a pediatric oncologist, you see the kids, you see the problems, you, you know, you have these kids where you treat them, and these tumors are really typically responsive to the medicine and that we give, and they go away, and then you stop, and some of them just come back right afterwards as well. Um, some of the kids come in, and one of the things that's prognostic in radiomyosarcoma is node involvement. And so trying to keep these things in mind, like what are the things that that um, limit our ability to, to get kids to cure, allows us to better model the disease in the animals. So we're looking into ways to study lymph node uh, metastasis in our model, as well as lung metastasis, involvement of the bone marrow. So knowing these things, we're able to kind of recapitulate that as well. Um, you know, we can give, we give our animals the same, the VAC chemotherapy that we give kids, and we can ask when it comes back, how is it different? And so those are things that are, can be challenging to do, um, from human samples. I think there's a lot to be gained too in the, um, basic understanding of a disease as well. I think we all, tend to look for something that we can get really quickly to our right. patients. And and we need that too. But we need we need people who can step back and really think deeply about a problem and and, and come up with new ideas. I think I think many of us have said for a while that one of the biggest problems we have is a lack of new ideas. But those take a lot of hard thinking and that's hard. Well the other problem I guess is is are the models authentic. Exactly. And it sounds like what you're developing and contributing to the field at the moment is what appear to be more authentic models than we've had uh, in many ways, many respects. Um, I guess the criticism of transgenic models is that you're driving one particular pathway and maybe uh, ignoring the diversity of naturally arising human tumors. But um, if you have appropriate models, then the drug screening that you do may be hopefully more authentic or accurate or predictive of what might happen in a person. But because the uh, counter argument is, well, if you're, you know, you could get to the same place by screening, you know, hundreds of thousands of molecules and figure out which ones work. Maybe that's even getting there faster than trying to, you know, yeah, do it logically. Right, right. And so um, I think we're doing that at St. Jude. We're pushing the molecules through high throughput screens, looking for things that that kill rhodomycercoma cells. Um, and so hopefully, you know, those type of efforts will pan off too, pan out too. Um, but sometimes, the, you know, we don't know, we'll get some molecule that comes out of a natural product library or some obscure, um, chemical that a chemist made to fill chemical space. And then we don't know what it's targeting. If we don't know what it's targeting, it's hard to predict what the, um, toxicities would be. So we, we just have to try. Um, and so that's not very satisfying either. So, um, I think it takes a combination, and it's likely going to take all of us working together to, to kind of solve these problems. I think all of us have 
you know, we've been moving this forward since 1974, and uh, we're right back where we started, so we need to do something different. So do you think there's hope for for everybody out there that is interested in randomized sarcoma within uh, our lifetime? I I think so. I think we're I think things are definitely um, changing. I think through all of the um, the studies over the last um, many years, we definitely have a way to better classify patients and group them into categories that do well and uh, or ones that don't do so well, where we need to do some things uh, a little differently right up front. And so I think with the latest genomic efforts where we're doing a lot of patient-derived genome sequencing on patients' tumors and germlines as, they, as they're diagnosed, I think hopefully we'll be able to start putting some pieces together to, to either further molecularly classify patients, and then hopefully that will direct us to potential targeted therapies we can build in with our current regimens. Sure is a fascinating time to be doing this kind of stuff, isn't it? I mean, if, if I think about the science that you do and think about that, how that wouldn't have even been possible just even a few years ago. Right, right. So it's right. pretty amazing how fast things move anymore. Well, on the one hand, they seem like they move fast, but from a parent's perspective <laughs> right. or yeah, you know, yeah. even a provider's perspective, it takes so much effort to put things into trials yeah. and decide if they're working or not, you know, wait five years to see the outcomes. Things move pretty slow. But compared right. to how it used to move. <laughs> right. And so now I think that's what's going to be really important for us moving these trials forward. If we find something in these high-throughput screens, um, I think we're going to have to take a step back and look at the genomics of these patients because I think, you know, the fusion-negative rhabdomyosarcoma is going to be a gamish. It's going to be a lot of different driver mutations, potentially, as well as probably going to lend them to have different vulnerabilities. And so if we broadly move these targeted agents that we find in the screening efforts to the whole group, we're probably going to dilute the, the uh, benefit that we could potentially see. So I think we're going to have to be selective about the patients we... Right patient, right drug. Right, exactly. What about the, the idea that, yes, these are heterogeneous group of tumors, but each one within itself is heterogeneous, and so there may be different drivers within the same tumor. Right, and then that's definitely true. And so um, some of our the work at, at St. Jude from our um, the first report from our pediatric cancer genome project on randomized sarcoma, we kind of we described that we described like the, the clonal evolution. We have we had some samples that we had sequenced um, from the diagnosis of a patient as well as through multiple relapses. And so the one thing that was interesting about that we saw the acquisition of multiple clones, and at each stage there were multiple clones within the one tumor. One interesting, we saw one pervasive mutation, that, a RAS mutation, that persisted all the way through in every clone, um, and then the acquisition of and loss of um, tumor suppressors along the way in, in different clones that were either susceptible or not susceptible to the treatments that were given. So I think those things are going to be really important. So I think it's going to be... Uh, a more basic biology to figure out what the key driving mutations truly are. Sounds like it'll come full circle with your career back to RAS again. So <laughs> I hope so. That's that's what we're working on now. Right. Yeah. Great. Well, it's been terrific to chat with you. I appreciate your being here and, and talking about your work with us. It's been an exciting day, and uh, you know, come again anytime. Right. Uh, thank you for being here, co-hosting Ryan. Appreciate it's it. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. As we say every week, we're happy to read your emails during future podcasts and discuss your comments and questions if you send us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow us on Twitter at 
Twippo podcast, and you can also sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes by going on to the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks to the team of Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Scott Kennedy and John Lennon, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.